0: Welcome to the One Climbs Podcast, a show about exploring life through the lens of theology, scripture, symbolism, and ideas that uplift the human mind. Fowler, and I'll explain why. He was an American theologian who was a professor of theology and human development at Emory University. He was also a Methodist minister who created this developmental model based on faith, and he wrote the book Stages of Faith The Psychology of Human Development and the Quest for Meaning. Now, I want to start off by saying I haven't actually read his book yet, but I have read a lot about um, the Stages of Faith model that he's put together. And I found even just a very uh, small understanding of this model can be very, very helpful to those who are interested in people's journey through through faith, their own faith journey, and how to figure out some of the issues that sometimes we have and work through those so that, you know, we could help people really strengthen their relationships with God and, receive the ultimate realization of the blessings that are offered to us from him. So just to kind of dig into it, I'm going to go through each of these six stages, tell you a little bit about them, and then we'll kind of explain a little bit more on how I think they apply to our journey in the Latter-day Saint faith and in kind of our theology and some of the things that we struggle with. Uh, Over on my blog, oneclimbs.com, if you search stages of faith, you'll find a really great audio recording that I highly recommend, which is narrated by John Pauline, and he's having a discussion talking about all of these stages in faith in depth. And I'm not going to try to uh, compete with the really great work that he did, but I do want to uh, speak to this from a a Latter-day Saint perspective. Um, He comes from the Seventh-day Adventist background, but I... Virtually everything he says is very much applicable uh, to us. It's not very foreign at all. So let's go ahead and dig into it. We're going to start with stage one. This is called the intuitive projective stage. And this is usually what three to seven year olds are in. And this stage is, is a time in which fantasy and reality often get mixed together and most of the basic ideas about god are usually picked up from either parents and or society so kids understand things and they they kind of mix together a lot of different ideas and they're heavily influenced obviously by kind of these the outside forces around them which most of us are but little children are even more so influenced So stage two is the mythic literal stage. This happens between ages roughly seven and 12. And people in this stage generally accept the stories of their faith community, but they tend to understand them in very literal ways. And a few people actually remain in this stage through adulthood. Now stage three is called the synthetic conventional stage. And this can be anyone from age 12 and up. And this is a stage in which actually most people remain throughout their lives. So they arrive at this stage as teenagers and their life includes several different social circles. They've, you know, they're in school, you know, either high school, college, work, business, their social circles are expanding and they have this feeling that they need to pull everything together and adopt an all encompassing belief system whether it's the one they grew up with or maybe conversion to another belief system or a rejection of, of their current belief system and adoption of another way of looking at the world. But they, they basically create this box and they have a very hard time seeing outside this box that they create. And they don't recognize that they are inside of a belief system. I mean, even atheism can be considered a belief system. It's, it's a understanding of the reality around you. But we could be very um, rigid in, in these belief systems and not accept anything else outside of them. It's like everything in my box is good and everything outside of the box is bad or threat to this box that I've created. And authority is usually placed in individuals or groups that represent one's beliefs. So people will become part of a group or a community or an organization and they'll pledge allegiance to that community. They'll display the symbols of that community and really hold to those concepts. Now, none of these stages that we're talking about are necessarily good or bad. These are just stages that people can find themselves in. And these are just kind of very rough sketches. There can be a lot of variation uh, in in these stages, but... Just an overall understanding of these is helpful. So stage four, this is a very interesting stage. This is called the um, individuative reflective stage. And it happens typically in the mid-20s, late 30s. And this is when people start seeing outside the box and realizing there are other boxes. And they begin to critically examine their beliefs on their own. And they often become disillusioned with their formal faith. This this is kind of like that faith crisis stage. And ironically, this is kind of the sad thing that stage three people usually think that stage four people have become backsliders or apostates, when in reality, they have actually moved forward. But the stage three people typically don't know how to help them. They don't know how to answer their questions. And so a lot of times stage four people are left not knowing what to do. So they abandon their faith. They, they go off in this or that direction. They don't realize that they're, they're actually still in, in a stage of faith that doesn't have to divorce them from uh, some of the, the knowledge and understanding that they have. And this can be a very confusing and sad stage for many people. So then after stage four is stage five which is conjunctive faith. And this typically happens in midlife, and it's pretty rare for people to reach a stage before midlife. And this is a point when people begin to realize the limits of logic, and they start to accept the paradoxes in life. They begin to see life as a mystery, and often return to sacred stories and symbols, but this time without being stuck in any particular um, theological box or, or or being restricted to a certain set of ideas. They can enjoy a variety of things and kind of see them in a unique way. Uh, unique way. And a lot of times stage five people can be very confusing to stage three people as can stage four. These are both um, ways of looking at the world and exercising faith that are kind of foreign to somebody in an earlier stage. They're either confused or threatened by these things uh, because again, anything outside of the box is seen as threatening. And so stage six is called universalizing faith, which uh, can occur in later adulthood. And very few people reach this stage. And those that do, they live their lives in full service to others without any real worries or doubts and these are people that actually they walk the walk of some of the great religious traditions in the world they are able to practice those principles uh, without fear and uh, are able to show love towards people without any judgment or condemnation they they fully live the things that are that are being preached because they understand them on a very deep level and usually, again, people in stage six, they would be very confusing to other people before. What I think is funny is uh, not, gosh, not funny, um, <laughs> kind of sad, but but very interesting is John Pauline of that, that uh, Stages of Faith audio that I recommended for my blog, um, he suggests, he said something that I've always remembered. He says, you know, if somebody's one stage ahead of you, you can often you know, you admire them. They're, they're interesting to you. If someone's two, two stages in front of you, then, uh, they're kind of confusing to you. Uh, they, they can even trouble you. And if somebody's three stages ahead of you, uh, usually they get killed because people can't tolerate their, their existence. It's just too much. And so we can certainly see kind of a pattern of that in the scriptures where, you have certain people coming and sharing messages and they're looked at as false prophets. You look at Lehi, who was called a visionary man uh, by his own family. And we do see some of these things kind of playing out in the scriptures. So this isn't really like a diagnostic tool that you could use to then go and put people into boxes and say that they have to be in this. No, this this is not what this is for. This is just a model. And... It is helpful, I think, in, in looking at oneself and also looking at other people in your faith community and also just the community at large. I don't think these things apply specifically to religion either. I think the stages of faith can also apply to just ideology in general. We see different people that have political ideologies like their party is good. The other party is completely bad. Whereas some people might be independents because they say, well, um, some of the things these parties teach are good over here and some of these are good. So I don't want to throw my allegiance behind, completely behind one. I want the freedom to um, vote for and elect people that are just good people that hold to these things. Well, those people are usually seen as apostates or not taking a stand. They're not understood very well. So I, I can definitely see how these things operate in in other ideologies, whether they're scientific, political, or cultural, these things still seem to exist and, and be a thing. And none of these stages are better than other stages. You might think that stage six would be the best stage and we're all working to get there. That'd be great if we were all there, but I don't know that we're all going to be there in this life. And you could argue that, you know, stage one where fantasy and reality are mixed, but still, even with the developmental age of the child, small children can exercise incredible faith. They can have um, miracles happen in their lives. They can be given wise things to say. Uh, There are stories in the scriptures about that. Um, And so... There are personal experiences and things that I've witnessed where small children were given incredible experiences with God just by the, the simple exercise, you know, of their faith. So none of these is better than other ones. You might think that the stage three people are stuck in this box and, and it's restrictive and they don't see beyond it. And that's limiting. And it is in some degree, but a lot of people can do amazing things within that box Somebody might sit within the religion and go, my religion is the true one. And, and they go out and because they're pure in heart, they go and they serve and they do those simple things that their faith teaches and they receive immense spiritual blessings and it's very rich and fulfilling for them. And so, you know, a stage four person may look back at a stage three person and see them as naive, confused, uh, you know, and, and look down upon them. But that's just as bad, I think, as a stage three person looking at a stage four and thinking they're apostate. So there's, I think stage six people kind of move beyond all this judgment between the stages and they just look at people where they're at and what they need. And that's, you know, without a personal knowledge of God, I think that can be very, very difficult to do. You would have to have a, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, am not a stage six person, so I couldn't answer that question. We'll have to find a stage six person and, and talk to them about that. But you know, what, what can happen is when we transition out of this stage, a lot of time from one stage to another, we may not know what that means in our life. And we may see other people this happening to other people and we see their confusion, their frustration, you know, where they get stuck and, and we don't know how to help them. Well, this model, I think, is is helpful in understanding, at the very least, that we are at these different stages and different phases and have different needs. And it's important for people who are at, um, I don't want to say higher stages, but in this, this kind of model, there, there are people that progress from one stage to another, and let's just say for the sake of it, we'll just say higher stages, they can help and mentor people at the lower stages because they've all been... Uh, where others have been before. And typically, you move one way through these stages. So once you're into stage four and stage five, you cannot go back to stage three. It's not possible. So in, in that respect, it's important for the people at some of these higher stages to understand this mentorship role that they have. And a lot of people may not want to take that on. They may be comfortable where they were before, they want people to teach them. They want someone to tell them the truth. But this awakening has occurred. They've moved forward and they're trying to fit back into stage three and say where... And I think one place I see this most often is somebody like a stage four five person who goes to church. They've kind of had the faith crisis. They've reconciled some things and they're willing to continue on the journey of church, but then they complain because they don't feel like they get anything out of, let's say a testimony meeting or church talks. They feel everything is dry and simple and they get frustrated because they see all these other people around them. Wasn't that talk great? Oh, that inspired me so much. And they don't feel anything from it. And, and they end up kind of getting fed up at church or feeling like they don't have a place at church because something's changed they're not getting out of it what they got before and someone in that position needs to be needs some help that they're stuck they're not growing spiritually because they don't realize they've moved on and so it's important for those types of people to realize that that they may have progressed to a place where they need to take on the role of mentor instead of expecting so much from other people, they may need to talk to the people at these lesser stages and, and help them grow where they are. Now, the whole purpose of someone at a higher stage is not to drag other people to where they are. That may be, you know, this, this temptation, because we always talk about bringing to light the hidden things of darkness and, um, testifying and warning the people and everything. And those are, those are valid and legitimate arguments, but I don't think they apply here. It's, it's not necessary to go in and attack someone's box and bust it to pieces and then say, I'm going to help you move into stage four and then stage five. That could be very disruptive just to a person psychologically. And, and I don't think it's helpful all, at all because we're assuming we know what a person needs and where they need to move in their faith journey. And I think that's something that, that God kind of needs to work with them on and that they need to figure that out as they go through life. But we can be there to observe people and where they are. And if they are moving into these other stages, we can mentor and coach them and we can find great purpose in, in being those mentors as well. And so, so I think if these things were better understood maybe there there were a lot of issues at church that that we could get through a lot more maybe more members of the church could be helped and help others at the same time if we if we kind of took a look at this model in a little more depth and and maybe understood what what some of these things could mean so so that's why i think this model is actually very helpful and i think that the vast majority of our work that we do in church is is pretty much within stages three, four, and five. Now, if we factor in primary and the younger kids, yes, we got stage one and two, but um, in speaking of adults, I think some of the most critical uh, things happen within stages three, four, and five. The vast majority of religious people and churches, that's the other interesting thing that John Pauline says. He says that he believes that all churches are stage three. And he had this interesting theory about maybe it's going to take a entire church that can move into stage four to be the type of church that Christ would be ready to accept when He comes again. You'll have to listen to that. It's it's a really fascinating theory, and I I think there's there's some validity to it if you if you kind of think about it more. But I don't want to get into into that uh, per se right now. But If you think about the story of, of Santa Claus, I think most people's journey with the story of Santa Claus kind of is a stage three, four, five journey. So you begin as a child thinking there's this, this literalness that there's the Santa Claus and he flies around and he brings you presents. Then this kind of faith crisis occurs, you realize that that box of understanding that perception is incorrect. And you at some point learn, why does Santa Claus have the same handwriting as my parents? Why does he use the same wrapping paper? You start to put things together. You may have heard kids at school talking about it, or some uncle comes over and goes, ah, these kids and their belief in Santa Claus, something happens to kind of shake you out of it. And then then a lot of kids can get really disturbed by this. My parents have lied to me. They, they're very upset that this Santa Claus doesn't exist. They can feel betrayed. They can feel um, like they don't really understand what's true in the world anymore. Like, what else am I being lied to about? It could be a pretty uh, dramatic experience for kids. Um, but then as the kids get older, they learn, oh, there actually was... A Saint Nicholas, and this is actually what I do with my kids. Uh, when my kids are around, you know, seven or so years old, I have a little talk with them, and I explain to them the story of, of Santa Claus, and I tell them that Santa Claus was a real person. I never tell them. So first of all, I never tell my kids that there is a Santa Claus. Like I don't, I don't do anything to pretend that there is one. Besides despite that, they still believe because of their friends and and everyone else. So they, uh, but when they start getting old enough to ask about it, like, is there really a Santa Claus? And and then we have a discussion about, it. I said, let me tell you who he was. His name was St. Nicholas. Talk about how he, he cared for, um, you know, the weak among us. There's the story about how he left coins inside the stockings of these orphan kids. And that led to the, um, or, or I don't know if they're orphans, poor kids. They, that led to the The putting of things in stockings. And there are a lot of these legends that come from the things that he did, but there isn't actually a guy in a red suit that flies around with reindeer, but we use that symbol to help us remember the good things, the Christ-like things that St. Nicholas did. And we associate him with this season as kind of a symbol of somebody who exemplified these, these Christ-like behaviors, but his work points back to Christ. So we understand that he's a symbol. And so there's still value in this kind of Santa Claus character who goes along with this holiday. And, and, um, we understand the reality behind the character and how deeply intertwined it is into, um, or can be intertwined into the theology and, and some of this understanding. And so the kid now look, can look at this character as, as something that's good where, they may before in stage four have looked at it as this um you know this this deceptive character that was being used to play tricks on them which which that wasn't the intent behind it the whole intent that parents involve the santa claus thing is because you know they believe it's um it's something good for the kids to learn about but i i do think we take it a step too far when we go around telling children that there's literally this guy who comes around the house we deceive them with you know biting into cookies and simulating real events like this is a, a real thing that's happening. I think that carries it a little bit too far. Personally, I don't really like that kind of stuff because I think it can um, I think it can confuse a lot. You know, a lot of kids probably will grow out of it and, and, you know, not have issues with it at all. But I do think it's a great life experience to to allow a kid to kind of transition to this new understanding and talk about how that could apply to them uh, spiritually as well as they, they learn about things that what you understand about something theologically may be as simple as the way you understand Santa Claus to be right now, but understand that there's going to come times where you learn about doctrines, principles, history. Um, You're going to see the non cartoon version of it and it may trouble you, but to continue pushing through and learning and see what else might be there. Give things time to kind of, uh, uh, evolve in your mind and get over the initial shock that something isn't exactly how it was described to you. Cause we, we explain history in overly simplistic terms only because I think that history is, is very rich and complex. It has many moving parts to it. And the more you dig down into it, you find all of these details, many of which can be very troubling to people and, and they learn they just may not trust any history at all. And, you know, it's good to be skeptical and it's good to ask questions, but to a stage three person, they, they trust all the authorities around them and they, they couldn't envision why someone would lie and deceive them or not tell them all the truth. And we see that happening uh, in church as well, you learn about your own church history, and the the paintings and the pictures and the videos that are produced don't match with what the history actually is. Only because it's it's very complex. There are all these moving parts. You can't possibly weave the whole story into one little video or one little painting. But our our simplistic way of looking at things um, kind of assumes that. So we we have to get to a point if we step into that stage where we begin noticing these things, how do we process it? How do we come to understand it? So stage three people can get stuck in that they, they demand everything fit into their, their box. And there can be a lot of conflicts with a stage three person. And um, if, if you are somebody who you may feel like you're in stage four or five, it can be difficult to relate to somebody in stage three. But if I think if you understand where they're at and how they understand things, you can better communicate to them and help them understand things in a way that it still fits within their box and what their faith how their faith can be exercised accordingly, we can do a great job at at helping people through things. Not not by deceiving or lying to them, but speaking to them you know, on the level in the way that they understand. So, you know, one example of this And I've shared this story before, so I'll just do it again briefly. But I had um, my two daughters with me. One was four and one was, uh, she may have been like um, one, maybe two. And we were driving from St. George back to Las Vegas where I used to live. And my four-year-old asked me, Dad, how many miles are we from home? And what time are we going to get there? Now, I had the exact answer to both those questions and I knew it almost because of how frequently I I've driven back and forth between Vegas and St. George. And I knew we were about, um, a hundred something miles away. And I knew that it would take about two hours to get home. So I thought about that for a second. And then I realized, well, my four year old, she doesn't understand what a mile is, let alone a hundred and however many. Uh, and then even if i told her exactly the time we would get home pretty close to it within you know maybe 5 to 10 minutes she she can't read a clock so knowing the time wouldn't be helpful to her so instead of me just dismissing her going kid just sit there and and be quiet you know and and we'll get through this and um i thought about it for a minute and i kind of had this moment where i was thinking man, I wonder if we ask God these kinds of questions and he goes, oh, if I could only just tell you, but you're not going to get it. You don't have the full capacity to. Uh, So I I said, well, when God does that with us, sometimes he just gives us signs and he goes, I'll give you a sign. You watch for these things and and you'll know that this is close or that is close. So, so I looked out in front of me as I saw the setting sun and I remember from Boy Scouts, you know, how he can use your hand width to kind of guess the width of your hand is about an hour that the sun will travel in the sky. So I look up and it's like, Oh, well, the sun is about two hours from the horizon. And that's about how long it's going to take to get home. Perfect. So I said, all right, you see the sun off in the horizon. I said, when, when that sun drops down and touches the top of those mountains, then ask me again, because we're pretty much almost going to be home. And by the time that happens, you're probably going to look around and recognize our neighborhood and go, Oh, we're almost home. And that was very helpful to her. So she had her own way of, of determining when we were going to get home that she could check in on as often as she liked to kind of have a gauge of where she was at in her journey. So in the same way, if you're a stage four or five or four or five person trying to help a stage three person, you need to come down to their stage of where they're at. And if you're a stage three person trying to help a stage four or five, and if let's say you're listening to this for the first time and you consider yourself maybe a stage three person and you go, wow, there's somebody struggling with a faith crisis at my church or you know they're they're kind of upset that they don't feel like they're getting what they need to out of church cuz they've they've kind of progressed to this other stage where they have really specific needs that aren't being met by a stage 3 view i i don't know totally what i would recommend in those cases other than maybe finding a stage 5 person to help the stage 4 person out or just suggesting to the stage 5 person that that maybe they could change their focus on helping others rather than trying to be helped by others. Now, that, that doesn't mean that the stage four and stage five people are beyond mentorship, that they don't need someone to look after them. But I do think it would be helpful to help them reor- reorient their own thinking to understanding where they may be at in their faith journey, and what they can do there that would be helpful and inspiring to them. Because if stage six is universalizing faith where people live in the full service of others without any worries or doubts, how are, you know, it, it, it's not necessary that a stage five person must go to stage six, but how does a stage five person really prosper? Where are they going to get that richness from? And they may not get a lot of that richness at church now. Um, Well, in, in the way that a stage three person would is what I'm saying. So I could tell you, man, I could tell you a really long story, but I've already kind of gone a little bit long here. Personally, um, you could throw me in stage four, stage five, probably more likely stage five, just because of maybe more the of the characteristics of that stage. Uh, I'm not in in kind of a, a faith crisis mode. Um, I'm very comfortable with the paradoxes in life. In fact, I love them. I seek them out because I've often found that that a paradox is wrapped around a truth, just waiting to be unlocked. And so where I see paradoxes, i I look out for them as as things that I like seeing versus the things I don't like seeing. I, I like it when things don't go according to plan, when everything is is kind of slightly chaotic. I, I find a lot of goodness in that. But one of the things that really benefits me in in my journey is I've come to learn and appreciate the, the role of mentorship and seeking to help others instead of looking to be fed myself. Now... I, I will admit that, you know, a, a large variety of testimonies and church talks and church classes don't really feel like they they stimulate me. Um, often they do. Often there's a talk or often there's a lesson that that I find deeply insightful that offers me some very valuable truths. But what I've done for the past 20 years is I've carried around with me a notebook. I always have a notebook when I come to church and I kind of consider it my small place where I listen for, um, prophecies, sacred things, um, great preaching and, uh, inspiration by the spirit. And I can record those things there. So even in the most basic talk, I'm not so much, I'm listening to what they're saying, but beyond that, I'm listening to the spirit and what the spirit can teach me through their words and through them as an individual. And so in every class, in every situation, I'm trying to listen and record. And I've learned that even, even in primary, even when you're around small children, if you listen And you allow the spirit to teach you. The spirit will mentor you and give you the ability to receive knowledge and teaching through people that are not at the same stage of faith as you might be. And that begins with not judging people and not thinking that you're better or superior or that your view is better or superior. You still have to have the attitude of a child where you look to God as your father and you're willing to submit to whatever he's going to put you through and church is still an incredible place of value. You just have to learn what church now means in whatever stage of faith that you're at, because the way that you behave and the way that you're enriched and the way that you enrich others, I think can change at these different levels. Uh, you know, a stage four person can be stuck into thinking that since their box fell apart, that everything they've ever taught, been taught or everything they've learned is now compromised because the box was true. Now, the box isn't true. It doesn't fit like it once did, or it wasn't true in the way you thought it was. And you begin to learn to question the premises that you had. So there's there's an example where you have 5 plus X equals 10. And you would think, well, the answer to that is simple. It's 5. Well, what if God reveals the answer to X is 7? 5 plus 7 is 10. God absolutely says, yes, X equals 10, 100%. Well, now you're confused because that mathematical equation does not work. But what if you began to examine what five was in the first place? Is five even the right number? Truth is, five wasn't the right number in the first place. You were you were composing a math problem and you didn't you didn't have the right parts to the equation. So after further reflection and looking into it, you realize that five was actually three. Now the math problem makes sense. Three plus seven equals ten. And sometimes we have this supposition that this is true because maybe we've heard it repeated over and over again and we we kind of do our theological math using incorrect equations and stage four is a time of us beginning to realize that there are flaws with our equations there isn't a flaw with the truth the flaws with how we see the truth or how we understand it to be and so stage four is kind of wrestling with those staves and and stage five seems to be kind of coming to terms with those things because a lot of times um it's almost like uh like x plus x equals x with, with some things or x plus x equals 10 and we don't have either of those first two numbers it could be one and nine it could be you know eight and two but bit by bit we start kind of putting those together until, until we find out what actually works. And a lot of times it requires revelation, it requires continued digging. There was a, a quote, I can't remember who said it, but they said, a little digging will lead you out of the church, and a lot of digging will lead you right back. And there was, a, there was another quote about, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., um, and he said, I don't know, this is Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. He says, I would not give a fig for the simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Now, that may not make much sense. I'm not sure if it does to you. But a lot of times what I've found is when I start my in-depth searching into a doctrinal... Um, point or a principle of the gospel you know i may begin with a very simple understanding of it it's like oh it's it's just this this simple thing right like the the sacrament for instance okay we take the bread and this water and it represents christ's body and blood and we remember him and then you begin to dig into it more and you realize this symbolism behind you realize that bread and wine both are products of a Of a fermentation process that you know one comes one's the fruit of this this grass and the other is the the fruit of this um, this vine and when and then you start to realize that maybe it's not the wine itself what's in the cup that's significant but the symbol is actually the cup itself which if you read uh, what Paul wrote about it he makes reference to the cup more so, the cup and doesn't even mention the wine of of what's in it in a couple of scriptures, and that eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, and then you realize the cup is actually uh, potentially symbolic of the the bitter cup Christ drank. He drank a bitter cup, and now we drink a a delicious cup, a sweet cup, um, and um, and we start seeing the sacrament differently. We we look at the bread and the and the water under this shroud. That then is brought back and then the bread, the body of Christ, the bread rises up off of this altar and comes and resides in each of us. And now we have, uh, we're witnessing a resurrection every Sunday and the, the living Christ comes and resides in each of us. And as we absorb the, the actual matter from the bread and the water into our bodies and those atoms and molecules become part of us, in that same sense, the teachings of Christ, his spirit his pure love become part of us bit by bit. And so now you're at that simplicity on the other side of complexity. So now after you've gone through all that complexity, you return back and you see this, this simple beauty of the sacrament that's so much deeper than what you have before. And I think that's what um, Holmes was talking about uh, in, in respect to this, this simplicity on either side of complexity. And I think that relates a lot to kind of stage three, four and five as well, where we have this, this growth that occurs, but we don't, we can sometimes see it as, as backsliding or apostasy. And I think that's probably one of the most tragic things that can happen um, within our communities is that these people that really need our help are not Equipped with the tools to, to navigate that particular stage of faith and, and and what it could mean. And we simply just throw the same solutions that we would throw at just a, you know, an active regular member of the church. And we assume that solves all of the answers because it solves, it solves the answer to those questions for us. So it may solve the answers to those questions for others. Likewise, People in stage four and five may find ways of journeying through their faith. And then they try to weave those things into their talks and lessons, assuming that stage three people are going to be inspired by those things. And sometimes they are, sometimes they're like, wow, this guy's got, you know, this guy's got a way different understanding of this than I did, but I don't really understand it and not sure how to apply it. And so it it may not be the best thing to, to try to go way over someone's heads Especially if you're right in the middle of that simplicity, complexity, simplicity, and you're still in the complexity and you go up and you kind of fire hose everyone and, and blow them over. I know that I've done that with a lot of people over the years and um, I didn't realize that I was probably doing more damage than good, uh, you know, when when doing some of those things. And so I've, I've had to dial things back quite a bit and I've returned to a... Um, kind of a, a state of mass simplicity, but it's based on so much rich complexity that uh, I, I put these things into practice in my life in, in very simple ways. but with but kind of endowed with all of this extra uh, you know wisdom and knowledge that I'm continually adding to. And, and I often find that the more knowledge and the more wisdom that I gain from all of these different sources, the more it enriches that the simple truths of the gospel. So anyway, I could probably uh, most, well, most definitely just keep going on and on, but um, I'm going to kind of cut it off here. So I encourage you to check out Fowler's Stages of Faith. You can go online, you can read a lot of articles and things that have been written about them, and hopefully they help you in your own faith journey, wherever you happen to be. And I also hope that they can help you as you help others or as, or, or how you, you see others and view them as to where they're at and, and be a, a shining influence in their lives, wherever you may be so that we can realize the value of just the journey of faith in general and how it's different for each and every one of us. So with that, I'm going to sign off and encourage you to keep climbing and remember to enjoy the view.